0: I am Captain Providence. You are. Enchanté, mademoiselle. My title is Captain. Enchanté. Captain. Uh, Hey, everyone. Welcome to Snakes and Funerals. Uh, It's been a minute, Eli, uh, but glad to be back after a little bit of an unintentional hiatus for uh, the last couple months. (laughs)
1: Yar har har. It's
0: me, <laughs> I was Eli, your co-host. <laughs> I was I was myself avoiding uh, any pirate funds uh, at this point, but I was wondering if that was going to happen. Uh, well, yes. Uh, today we'll be talking about uh, pirate pirate films, uh, as as uh, Eli's pirate voice there might uh, suggest. Uh, I think if I had my druthers, we'd be discussing Steven Spielberg's Hook as part of this show. Uh, but thankfully for everyone else, uh, we're not. And I'm sure if Eli had his choice, we'd be doing a 10-part series on, on One Piece. Exactly. Uh. <laughs>
1: and just so you know, One Piece is good in my book. And I uh, I imagine that this podcast you know, will be about its normal length, but Ed, uh, Evan will have to trim down like an additional three hours of me <laughs> going on One Piece tangents in this podcast, clearly.
0: Yeah, we'll have to do a, a, you and John can do a spin-off show uh, of, of Snakes and Funerals that's just on, on One Piece. Amen. But, um, but yeah, so uh, we will not be talking about Hook or or One Piece, uh, sadly, but uh, we did end up picking uh, three films that I think form quite a nice little triptych. Uh, somewhat unintentionally, uh, we picked films that all ended up focusing on uh, women pirates and... Uh, it's kind of me wonder if maybe just women pirate movies are the best pirate movies, because I'd pretty much rank these ones uh, up there. Um, And and yeah, I think they form an interesting, uh, uh, interesting group of films that sort of talk to each other uh, in an interesting way. So hopefully we can uh, explore that somewhat. So I guess I should name the films that we're talking about. So we're talking about uh, Anne of the Indies uh, by Jacques Turner, Norwa. I hope I'm saying that right. (laughs) I think I am. Uh, by Jacques Rivette and Singing Behind Screens uh, by Hermano Olmi. You mean we're not talking about
1: the most recent Pirate of the Caribbean movie? <laughs> there were of the so Caribbean many.
0: 6, Give me more money. <laughs> there were so many options that we could have done for this episode. That, so many roads not taken. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, so, anyway. Yeah, I'm really excited
1: to talk about these films. So, um,. I'm not sure if you want to just take it away.
0: Or yeah, let's just dive in. I don't. I don't really have an, an intro for. Uh, I don't have like a grand theory of, of pirate cinema to uh, start this show with, so unless you unless you do, uh, I think let's just dive pirates in. pirates are to, cool.
1: That's, yeah. that's my, uh Let's just dive in and into good.
0: all good. Anne of the Indies. Uh, so I think this is uh, one of uh, Turner's like supreme achievements. Uh, I think really only Canyon Passage. Uh, ranks higher for me in in the uh, pantheon of, of Turner movies uh, than Anne of the Indies. And this is the third time uh, that I'd seen the film. And each time I just find that even at, at like 70 minutes and just this little sort of adventure movie, that it grows so much richer and more mysterious uh, each time uh, that I see it. I, I think... Uh, Chris Fujiwara in, in his book on Turner uh, describes the movie as a, a passionate and bleak study of disappearance and impermanence, which is a, a sort of lofty description for this pirate movie, but I think speaks to something uh, for me of why the film is is so mysterious. And it has this sort of dance of, of like absence and presence uh, in the movie that I think is something that that crops up throughout Turner's cinema, but, but for me finds its most... Uh, sort of most beautiful uh, expression here. Um, but it's also just an incredibly beautiful, uh, fun movie. I think it's among the best, like straight up genre pieces that Turner made. And I think has arguably the best cast of any film that he, uh, put together. And I think it just has this, it really gets the nautical sea air of, of the pirate movie, um, so beautifully. And uh, the movie has this like pungent quality. I, it's a world that you could live in and, and step into. And there's something about uh, Turner's technicolor photography that, that just uh, makes the whole thing seem almost like in a good way. I don't mean this uh, in a negative sense, like disney in a way, like it's this whole world that you could uh, really step right into. And um, anyway, yeah, I, I just feel like totally uh, enveloped by this movie.
1: So I, I agree that this is uh, one of Turner's, uh best movies, uh, with the caveat that, I I know you rank this just right behind Canyon Passage, um, for me, it's just that Tornera has quite a few great movies, and there are some I would rank above this, but that doesn't in any way, I think, diminish uh, my feelings for this film. Although I don't view this film as mysterious in, I think, the same way that you do, and I don't mean that in a pejorative, um, but compared to certain other tornado films, um, like, uh, as you said, Canyon Passage, and uh, I Walk with a Zombie, uh, Night of the Demon, I I don't think that mysterious is the operative word here, um, simply because... I think that the emotions are plainly on the surface. Uh, Obviously, there is uh, an element uh, of of surfeit in the plot. Uh, But I don't think that um, this is a film about uh, mysteries and horrors that are... uh, Or even wonders, like in Canyon Passage, that are hidden just beyond view... Um, I think, I think, uh, Anne's, um, reaction to her betrayal, um, and her redemption are incredibly moving, uh, and a lot of that does have to do with the way that, um, Tornar shoots, uh, the fabulous Gene Peters in this movie, um, in her realization of that betrayal, uh, she is dressed in uh, this pink um, oh, it's, I don't, blouse isn't quite the word, but I don't know. But the shirt. Pirate yeah, shirt. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and um, yes, it is at night, but um, there might have been some, let's say, oil lighting behind her, but th- but there's not. She is of uh, by pitch blackness, and uh, Jean Peters just has this look on her face that everything she's believed in is a lie, and that she is exactly what Blackbeard has accused her of being,
0: which... Oh, see, that's that's interesting. I I, I think that's that's where our. No, I, I,
1: I don't think that she actually is. I think okay. that that's what she believes for that moment. Right, which is what I find moving.
0: Right. I mean, because for me, that's where the the mystery of this film lies. I agree that it doesn't have the same like externalized mystery either in the horrific sense, like you say of, of like the Luton films, or sort of the the natural mystery of of Canyon Passage. The mystery for this film, uh, for me, is all rooted in. In Anne's character, and Anne is so I think mysterious to herself in a way. I mean, the movie is, you know, the, the arc of the movie is her discovering this this sexuality and and this part of herself uh, that she didn't really know. Uh, she, she didn't she wasn't aware it existed in her at all prior to uh, meeting the very dashing uh, Louis Jordan, uh, who awakens this this in her. And I think the movie is really ultimately a tragedy of, of perception, really, where everyone, including Anne uh herself, is sort of incapable of of seeing Anne as, as a full person and understanding sort of the mystery of her herself. And I think that's that's for me where the movie is is most moving and where I find uh Turner's ability to sort of suggest things that are just outside of, of view um, most profound.
1: Okay, I, I see what you mean more, and y- yes, I was thinking of Mystery in Tournaire as something that is, for the most part, dependent on uh, atmosphere, which is, is not something that this movie is lacking, I just wouldn't call it mysterious. I, I don't um, necessarily like the term disney but there is... Uh, a vivid, uh, vividness that really you can only get with, uh, a set film like this, um, that Tornado doesn't try to, uh, disguise, not, not like a, a Sternberg way, but, uh, in his own way. Still, I, I don't think that Mystery is quite the right turn, because, uh, I am not entirely certain whether uh whether Anne truly understands herself and yeah I guess you could use the word mystery uh I just um this this could be a completely semantic issue here
0: um yeah I mean I don't think Anne un- understands herself and and that's what's so interesting to me about the movie it it the movie constantly is like, is shifting her understanding of herself and other people's understanding of her. And she's confronted with, uh, particularly the men, but not exclusively the men who are sort of un- unable to see her for anything other than, than what they already bring to the table. I mean, you know, she has this, this sort of romance with Jordan, but it, it becomes clear that he's actually just playing her for, uh, reasons that eventually become clear later on. Uh, and he eventually says to the those british officers that he meets in in the tavern uh sort of revealing his his true perception of her that she's like the vilest hearted she monster that ever came out of the sea or or whatever he says uh i'm not Blackbeard, sure if that is
1: i'm not sure if that is her true his true perception of her though i i believe that uh that is Certainly after she kidnaps Deborah Paget, which I I might be getting, like, chronology a little bit mixed up here of when he said that. Um, But I believe that there is a part of uh, her—sorry, a part of him that genuinely had feelings toward Anne, not the same way that he would for his wife. Um, But I I believe that there is uh, some doubt in that duplicity, not that he was— uh ever sincerely with her as a pirate. Um but I there's just something about their scenes together, uh and the look of uh look on his face near the end when he realized that Anne is sacrificing herself for them. Right for,
0: uh, but I think that's what—that's the know, tragedy yeah. of that of that final scene. I think because he finally is able to sort of see past the the like she pirate uh, perception of her and and finally sort of pierce something else uh,
1: about I agree her, and it's already yeah. too late. I agree uh, that that is and uh, complexity comes with her inability to. Uh, when I say inability, I don't mean personal as much as societal inability to recognize her own feelings, because that would be a way of admitting that she is a woman, whereas she wants to be. She wants to portray herself as the pirate captain that she is, and for uh, the other characters in this film, there is really. No, in between until she sacrifices her life at the end.
0: Right, I mean, it's like a dual realization both for Jordan and um, for the Blackbeard character as well, because he has a similar uh, perception of her, I mean, albeit from a a sort of uh, fond, warm standpoint, as as opposed to uh, La Rochelle's uh, sort of disgust at her. Um, You know, Blackbeard is this father-like character, but even he can't you know quite fully accept uh who she is either uh you know and the betrayal that he feels uh, at her um for having chosen la rochelle over him is, is basically what incites her her demise at the end and it's only that that final moment that final shot of him uh sort of bereft at, at what he's done that he realizes that uh the, sort of the consequences of of Forcing Anne into this particular uh, perception of, of her is is what brings her downfall. Uh, but anyway,s gears. <clears throat> sorry, did you want to? Oh, I just wanted to return. You had mentioned the just to move on from the the topic of Anne's uh, psychology, yeah. which we may circle back to, I suppose. But uh, the uh, the night scenes that you mentioned, uh, yeah, I that's just... actually
1: what I wanted. Oh, well, to... Okay, then then go for it. Uh, Talked about, but right before that, I, uh, so the night scene in particular I wanted to talk about is right after they land on that beach, Uh, but I wanted to start with their um, discussion uh, on that beach, which is uh, ostensibly uh, and uh, doing a bit of exposition Um, for the audience on her background, but it's done in this beautiful tracking shot, and for that whole shot um, Jean Peters and Louis Jardin are exactly in unison in their footsteps uh, which is a really nice touch um, because it suggests that there is um, something genuinely between them, which is furthered in the next few scenes, only to be really devastatingly crushed. But in that night scene itself, um, she is shown as this blackened silhouette uh, against this dark blue sky, and that is, I think, a quintessentially Tornarian um, shot. I, I feel like this is something that you might have seen in I Walk With a Zombie, but in Technicolor.
0: Yeah, and, and, yeah, I mean, I, I for me, Turner is, I think, honestly, like the greatest Technicolor cinematographer in a lot of ways because those night scenes, I've never seen any other uh, Technicolor look like the Turner night scenes in Absolutely. both this and, and Canyon Passage and even uh, something that's arguably more minor, like Flaming the Arrow. Uh, he keeps it so dark and... Crepuscular in a way that I think other people who worked in Technicolor around that time didn't feel confident that the images would come through clear enough that they could kind of crush the the color and and the light so much. Um, but Turner just makes the whole thing like have a this a paradoxically like dark glow, like the the moon on the sea and the sky sort of has this this bluish glow to them, and, and I don't know. There's just the way that Turner shoots it at night in these art films, I think, is even more striking than, than how he shoots uh, at night in black and white, which is saying something. Sure.
1: And, yeah, there, there's a repeated image of uh, the Sheba Queen. Uh, not sure why it wasn't called the Queen Sheba. But, um, <laughs> yes, against that um, dark blue night sky on, on uh, the ocean. And it's, it's the exact shot that is repeated a couple times. Uh Until at one point, you see that shot inserted again, but the ship is uh, turned a bit um, toward the right. And then when you see it, I think the last time in the film, uh, the ship is actually facing the other direction as it had been. And uh, that is a really neat little touch that Tornare added there. Um, Because when you do that... Uh, do see the ship going the other way. Uh, Yeah, that is geographically, but it also uh, signals that she is um, running. I mean, running away, but obviously sailing. (laughs) Uh, Whereas she was in pursuit in the first Mm -hmm. uh, part of the film. Uh...
0: Do you, I'm wondering, do you think, uh, well, I've seen it three times, and every time I I can't quite figure out actually how Turner accomplished some of the the ship uh, sequences, because if they're miniatures, they're extremely um, beautifully crafted miniatures, to the point where I I can't even really tell that they're miniatures, Um, but it it was like a smaller budgeted film, so. um, I'm assuming that it's a mixture of miniature and Maté. Yeah.
1: Yeah. and, and relating to the night shot that specific shot on the night of on, on the beach uh n- not alone uh, <laughs> uh that is repeated uh when Louis Jourdan comes to uh his wife's room only to see that she's not there uh when he looks out into the moon moonlit uh sky reflecting onto the sea looks very much like that earlier shot. Uh, And before he even sees that note, I feel like that was a way of signaling to him that it was definitely Anne uh, who kidnapped his wife. Obviously, that is not a diegetic thing, Mm -hmm. but uh, it's a really beautiful touch. And speaking of that note, I, I really love all the notes and maps and signs that are enclosed up in this film. Um, And I... It it should be something that is not remarkable and certainly is not unheard of, but um, even the lighting in those instances are
0: striking in a yes. very tornarian way. I love yeah, I love that uh shot where or so a few shots with that, that sequence where she Let's, takes the map and puts like a candle. I was about to say, yeah. Yes. She and puts it's like orange. a candle underneath yeah. the map, like props it up over like a a trunk or something in, in the like captain's quarters on the ship. And you get a few different views of this like tent, basically, that is the map, underlit by this like orange glowing candlelight. Yeah. Great stuff. Uh, well, and, and maps and and uh, compasses and all sorts of navigational tools are always like the signal uh, pleasures of uh, of pirate movies in a lot of ways, or one of them, anyways. Like. Uh, why I I do also, you
1: think? Oh, go ahead. Why do you think uh, that the way that Anne dies, shot by cannon instead of a sword fight, is particularly tragic? I'm thinking. Oh. why do you think I think this too? And I'm assuming <laughs> right. you're, you're leading um, me on. Exactly. Yes. Um, whereas she was all... Alre- we already knew that she was going to die. I think that was at least very much implied that she was doing this as a way of sacrificing herself. But why is that, which is almost like some, uh, an adventure movie where someone does something heroic and then dies of cold is, is how it feels. Right. Like. um but she had already committed herself to death, yet that I, I think that the nondescriptness of it all makes that more tragic, that she couldn't Absolutely. have that final heroic moment. Yeah, and I, I mean... I am leading you on, I know, but I wanted to know if you agree.
0: Yeah, totally. I mean, I, for me, uh, quite honestly, that like four-shot moment uh, of her death when she jumps up onto the the mass of the ship, not the mass, but the the sort of like sail girding. I don't know, I'm not a nautical cool person. I don't know what, what that part of the ship's called. Uh, but she jumps up on, on the side of the ship and uh, you know Blackbeard's like about to fire and then and then yells at his uh, his pirates to to not shoot. And then it cuts back uh, to uh, I believe to Blackbeard, then there's a shot of the cannon going off. And then it cuts back to the shot we had just seen where she was standing on the ship, but suddenly it's on fire and the and she's gone. And the place that she was standing is like blown apart by the cannon. And for me, like that is the Turner's greatest moment uh, in all of his films. And the reason is, I think it, it gets to exactly what I sort of opened this with with what Chris Foujois talked about is this, like, disappearance and impermanence and this absence and, and presence. Like, it's an erasure of, of Anne. She doesn't get to die, as you suggest, in a heroic fashion. She is literally torn out of the fabric of the movie, and it happens in in just in a single instant, basically, like, four quick cuts. And the first time I watched this movie, I, like, just I, the, had a physical reaction to... Suddenly seeing Anne on that side of the ship and then just being gone instantly and um, yeah I mean it, it's this like canceling out of Anne a, as a person and as a, a presence in the film um, that is is very uh, tragic and moving I think so.
1: Um. So I forget the doctor's name, but he's played by Herbert Marshall. Yes, oh, I'm glad. Yeah,
0: I'm glad. I want to talk about the sort of the side characters in this, because
1: sure, Uh, and and you had mentioned to me um, over text that um, this was Herbert Marshall, and and I certainly didn't recognize him. Uh, But yes, this was the great Lubitsch era actor, Herbert Marshall. Uh, What's interesting to me is, of course. Tournaire had no control over these scripts. Um, Yet, this almost seems like an an authorial insert uh, in in Herbert Marshall's character as the conscience of the film. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that has something to do uh, with the fact that it is Herbert Marshall, not that you had to actually... Know that uh, certainly I didn't, but um, he does have this aura about him of a weary man who has seen it all already and just wants there to be good for once. And I and I think that does has something to do with the tragedy of this film.
0: Yeah, well, I love that moment uh, when he finally calls her Anne uh, for the first time uh, towards towards the end of the film when he knows she's sort of about to go to her her death, um, and and she sort of rebukes him for for calling him uh, calling her by her name. But um, yeah, they have a very uh, tender relationship, and I think it, it even adds something um, beyond just what you're saying about the character to to know that it, it's Herbert Marshall playing him because I think Marshall at this point in his career had. Um, he was still working as in sort of these character actor roles, but he had fallen a long way from I think the the height of his career, uh, sort of under Lubitsch in, in the thirties. Um, and I think that that aura that you suggest is is both the character and really comes, at least for me, from. Uh, Seeing Marshall this this late in in sort of the classical Hollywood era, an era you don't really associate with him, he does sort of seem like this figure who has seen everything and, and has cropped up from an earlier era, um, but he ultimately is is not really listened to, and that sort of uh, does result in the in the tragedy of it. But uh, yeah i mean I, I I think all the the side characters in this movie are, are really wonderful. I think Deborah Pache is really great in this uh, the like uh, yes and
1: I, I also like the actor who plays Blackbeard i yeah,
0: think yeah. Uh, has that
1: rare mix of uh fatherly and menacing insanity
0: mm-hmm yeah, that initial scene when she goes and and meets him uh, in the tavern, and they have their like little sword fight, um, and you really get a sense of of yeah his fatherly relationship to her and, and how much they mean to each other. Um, and th- I can't really think of a lot of relationships in in like these kinds of movies that are quite like that uh, that relationship between Anne and and Blackbeard.
1: Well, you just have to read one piece to get more. Uh, <laughs> uh, and on that note. Um... And the Indies is fantastic. Uh, and sh- go watch it.
0: Yeah, um, I think just before we uh, transition out of And of the Indies and and into uh, the next one we're going to be talking about, which is Rivette's uh, nerwa I wanted to uh, highlight something that actually Felipe Furtado had said on his little letterbox blurb for And of the Indies, which is not something that I had initially thought about when when watching the film, but after I had read his... Uh, his little blurb uh ever since I'd first seen it uh, that's really it's really stuck with me and, and seems quite true, uh which oh. is that uh Revette's cinema would be hard to imagine without Anne of the Indies. Um and I think as we uh transition into Norwa, I think it, it's helpful to uh, keep in mind the I think the ways in which the sort of the play acting that's happening in Anne of the Indies, the sort of um the masks that people wear to themselves and, and to each other. Um mm-hmm. Do sort of uh, crop up again. So, uh, shall we take a little break and then come back to uh, discuss Nerwa? Perfect. Okay. Now to my tragic business. I have not fashioned this only for show and useless property. No, it shall bear a part, e'en in its own revenge. This very skull, with this drug. Shall be revenged, and kiss his lips to death. As much as a dumb thing can, he shall feel. What fails in poison will supply in steel. All right, and welcome back. Uh, and now we're going to be talking about uh, Jacques Rivette's uh, Norois, which is the Uh, Second, in terms of of, uh, films that he made in his uh, Scenes from a Parallel Life series, I think it opens saying it's the the third film in the Never Really Completed uh, series. Uh, But in any case, this is uh, the sort of pirate adventure film um, mirror image, uh, in a lot of ways, of Duel, which uh, plays with with sort of film noir uh, conventions uh, in this Ravetian way. And I think uh what's what's particularly fun to me about Noir is that something like Duel, which is playing with these these film noir conventions I think the audience both the audience and Revette, come to something like Duel with maybe a clearer sense of exactly what the iconography and um sort of syntax of of film noir is uh whereas I think. Though we obviously selected pirate films today because the genre of films that we like, I think there are less obvious signifiers it's less sort of built into uh movie like watching context like as film noir is uh that I think it doesn't register quite uh so clearly what the what the genre is and so I think uh part of what I love about Noir is that Rivette sets out to to make a pirate film but in, in classic Rivettian fashion, it uh, sort of moves into being many, many other things uh, simultaneously. And uh, though it, it constantly sort of rooted in, in ideas of, of pirates and um, this, the relationship between uh, Geraldine Chaplin and uh, Bernadette Lafont, who is a, uh, a pirate that she wants to take revenge on, uh, it also finds space to explore Rivet's interests uh, in theater um, in in masquerades and, and play acting, which I think, uh, as I'd mentioned before the break, uh, connects it to Anne of the Indies, uh, and also allows him to dress Burundette LaFont in what I think are arguably the uh, the greatest costumes in in any movie uh, ever made. So, uh. and
1: it's not like the other characters are wearing rags. <laughs> no. It's like everyone in this film is dressed. I agree that LaFont gets the best right. uh, costumes, but. Certain, but everyone in this film
0: is. She's first among practical. equals, but exactly, uh, yeah.
1: <laughs> you know, I, talking about um, familiarity with genre coming into this, uh, I certainly agree to you, with you that from a film perspective, um, noir is much more recognized as a genre than uh, any sort of uh, pirate trope in in movies. Um, but I, I think that. There are um, aspects of this movie that are readily familiar uh, in in terms of tropes and and genre, but that they don't really come from movies. Certainly, we'll get to what movies seem to be in this movie's DNA very much, and there are several, Um, but uh, it, it does seem to reach back farther toward, as you said, Theater and in literature, um, with the idea of being a revenge film and uh, info in infiltrating uh, an organization, um, almost brings to mind um, infiltrating a lair, like in uh, a silent Lang movie, mm-hmm. um, and. I find that the demarcation between uh the landscape scenes, which have um an overbearing presence of nature, like the wind and the sound of the sea is is often um mixed louder than it would be naturally. Um and Rivet shoots these landscapes almost like um Mizuguchi at times, uh in, in this um you know complex wide um format uh but then the interiors have as i said this at least to me um feeling of a lair which is yes the idea of uh, i guess a, a pirate's treasure hideout is is not something unique but um it as i said for me it almost brings to mind more uh something like uh you know a criminal underground lair
0: mhm well and i think that gets to where uh lafons character is sort of an odd fit as like this pirate woman because really her organization such as it is it does operate more like a a gang uh rather than than anything you see in, in like end of the indies for example um, yes
1: well, like when does this movie take place do you think that it takes place in uh, <laughs> Impossible centuries ago to say. and then there are um uh, motorboats
0: right and lafont looks like she's dressed up to go to like a 70s gay disco and one thing i noticed this time that i'd never noticed before is that she's like snorting cocaine throughout i don't know have you? did you notice that
1: no, I, di- I didn't notice that. Oh, there's that, a, there's
0: so a that few... would explain her character's behavior. <laughs> there's a few scenes, if you go back and watch, uh, where like, it, and it's in always in the like long shots where she's somewhere else in the frame and Rivette has moved the camera to focus on someone else. She'll just like kind of turn slightly away from the camera and if you listen, you can hear like a <sighs> sound <laughs> and she'll oh, wow. like have her, her, her hand like right up to her nose and she'll turn around and like quickly sort of brush her nose, uh, which is something I totally never caught before, so... Yeah, LaFont's, like, rolled in from a 70s gay disco where there's a lot of yeah. coke happening. Uh,
1: aren't, aren't some of the, let's say, like, more minor pirates part of, I believe, a dance company?
0: Uh, are they, like, explicitly part of a dance company?
1: Not, not like, credited, but I think right. that's where that found them. If oh, I okay, sure. okay. I didn't know that.
0: Um, um,
1: so th- there is, uh, I-, I think, a purposeful mixing of... Uh, Cent- centuries-old stagecraft with uh, 70s uh, I'm not sure if avant-garde would be quite the right word to use mm-hmm. here, but let's say the more chic uh, happening uh, art scene. Uh, and I, I just want to say, we we might be making this film sound like it's almost funny in the way it does this, and I'm not saying that there aren't any moments of humor in this film, uh, but it's a really horrifying, unnerving film at times, uh, and I think there's no better example of this when up until this point, all the deaths in the movie have been either off screen or done in a way that is very theatrical and, and not convincing at all um, but after the play within a play, which I want to talk about in itself specifically uh, in a bit uh you have this horrible throat-slitting scene, and uh, I, I was certainly uh, enjoying the movie very much up until then, um, but it made me realize that there was something going on with this movie that I didn't realize was there, that it seemed like everyone was almost not just uh, actors playing tigrets but actors as characters playing pirates. And it almost seems like in that scene, LaFont has had enough of the theatricality Mm -hmm. and makes it horrifying almost.
0: Yeah, suddenly the play becomes... Not the literal play in the, in yeah. the movie, but the, the play-acting, the playing around becomes very real, and, and uh, death suddenly creeps in. And actually, when I was watching it this time, I couldn't... Do you know why she kills that woman? Like, does it make sense to you why she just, like, slits her throat?
1: No, and I think that's the point. that's yeah. supposed to. Or that she does it as a, don't fuck with me, yeah, I right. don't like you to... It seems like you're making fun of me, um sort of in, intimidation tactic. Like, um, we would see a mob boss shoot one exactly. of a henchman to prove a point.
0: Right. Exactly. That's exactly what it's, I was going to say. It's, it's like a mob boss again, sort of this like gang like, uh, quality, uh, that, that her group has. Uh, one of the things that you mentioned that I did kind of want to return to, um, before we, uh, perhaps talk about the, the theater scene, um, is the landscapes, uh, because I don't really think of Rivette as a, like a landscape director, as someone who's, who's particularly attuned to landscape. Not that he, not that I think his movies are, are uh, uninteresting in how they treat landscapes, but I tend to think of him more as an urban filmmaker. I think, uh, you know, the, the Rivette films that really seem like the signal ones for me are, are things like Out One and, and the Pont du Nord, but, um, and even Duel, which is, which is very um, urban. But uh, he has such a, a way with the the landscapes here, as you suggest. Um, and even down...
1: I, uh, down... To say, I, I haven't seen the films of his, which I think might use landscapes just like this one do. So I don't want to comment on whether he is like an urban or landscape filmmaker. But go on. Uh,
0: well, I mean, I, I think he does have... I mean, I like Her Levant, his adaptation yeah, of Wuthering Heights, that. like yeah. has some of that. I mean, he has... And, um, and the uh, Joan of Arc movies definitely have that. I just... I just don't tend to think of him in my conception of him as, as someone who works with landscapes this beautifully. And so when I come back to those films, I'm always sort of surprised at like, Oh yeah, Rivette does have th- this part of him. Uh, and, I see, yes. and, and this one I think really is the, the most beautiful uh, example of that. I mean, down to the, the almost color direction of the landscape, like that purple, I don't know if it's like lavender, but that like purple shrub grass, that uh, cropped up in some of the landscape shots it gives the exact same kind of purple color that you see throughout a lot of the the clothing that the people exactly, wear yes. in the film um, and just everything about the landscape feels so integrated into um, like the aesthetic choices of how the film looks um, and and I, I just I find that uh, the red has so much control over that um, a, a testament to how how much he's thought through the look of this this film and and the crazy costumes and the um the more outlandish gestures aren't merely just something that he's doing for their own sake but have been clearly thought through as as being of a piece even if uh even if they're somewhat inexplicable um to watch
1: yes one of the i think uh less explicable uh elements is all the English dialogue which uh, I, I suppose is like casting a curse in some scenes, but seems um, to be just an alternate to French dialogue in some other scenes um, and i I don't know if. That is an indication on Rivette's part of his um, feelings toward and relationship to the English language, um, but that's always something that uh, I associate with this film. is the rare breaks into yeah. English.
0: Well, I, I think it's more not so much the English language generally, perhaps, but the this, because the the movie is like nominally somewhat based on. Um, this uh, Avengers drama, yeah, the Revengers tragedy, which I think was um, the credits uh, attribute to Cyril Turner, actually, uh, but uh, I think now it's largely uh, agreed upon that it's actually the work of Thomas Middleton and, and not Cyril Turner. But, sure. anyways, um, based on this play, and I haven't gone back to to look if the English language dialogue is coming directly from the play. But, Some of it is. Yeah, but okay. even if it's not, I think at the moments where it crops up, it does have this, like, incantatory quality. Like, it's calling up the the play itself, uh, even if it's not directly quoting the play. That um, I think that those are the moments where I like the scene where LaFont kills that that woman. There is something more violent is maybe not the right word, but those scenes seem to impend something. Uh, it, the English scenes more well, I mean, it's about revenge. I, I guess violent is the right word. Like they they impend something that is more uh, more violent, and and Chaplin sort of in particular is the one who's mostly speaking English tends to have those monologues in English as she's like contemplating her, her plot to to enact revenge. I just
1: like the skull mask.
0: Um, The the skull mask is very good.
1: Uh, in, in, in that scene, uh, the musicians, and I really like the music throughout this movie. I, I think it is, uh, in total, um, one of the more interesting film scores out there. Um, but these three musicians um, are never quite diegetic or non-diegetic. Uh, and in that scene, they seem to be more toward the former. But their music in that scene has is like little impacts on the scene. A uh, little bit of punctuation uh, in a way that almost seems like Rivette trying to emulate at least what he believes to be no drama. Uh Japanese hmm. no theater. Um I'm not saying that it is a one to one thing, but um it it really reminded me of uh that or at least I should say no drama from what Ruvet might have Acquired from seeing so many Mizuguchi movies mm-hmm.
0: yeah i think I hadn't thought about that connection, but I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I'm no expert on um, Jacobby and drama and what music would have perhaps sounded like uh, then, but uh I, I find the that connection a reasonable one to make It does have the tones of the music and as you say, the way they're deployed are are quite similar uh,
1: i I remember um reading uh, Jonathan Rosenbaum's review of, of this movie. Um, and, of course, he, he talked about he, how he was on the set because, of course, he does. Um,
0: <laughs> Rosenbaum never, <laughs> never misses an opportunity uh, to name drop. So. Yes.
1: But uh, I believe the films that he references for this are uh, Moonfleet, which I yeah, totally absolutely. agree with, and House of Bamboo. And oh, that's an interesting one. I get what he meant that that has um, some elephant. So, excuse me, some element of uh, infiltration, um, like infiltrating society. But I don't think that that is a particularly one-to-one example in the same way that I actually think that of the Indies* does. Uh, and um, what we were saying before break about how of the Indies* uh, was. In, an impactful film uh, for Rivette. I, I think you can really see um, this in that light as Anthony and the Indies* remade, but um, both uh, Anne and Louis Jordan's character are women, and it's following the infiltrator mm-hmm. into this. Yeah,
0: yeah. But no, of course, that's exactly right. Uh,
1: but of course, it's not a one-to-one for anything like this. Uh, but I just thought that would be, well, how, how could anything be one to one
0: when this ends with like the, <laughs> uh, like si- like inner cutting silent 16 millimeter footage and like the blasted, like red tinted scenes? I of- love the red tint. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, I think, I think that that's right. I, that, uh, I think that's exactly like where the connection, um, with Anne of the Indies, uh, lies and i think also as i said before the break too like something about the the way in which everyone isn't just play acting like in the theater scenes or um sort of even just as a like an actor um sort of having the free ability that rivette gives his actors in the film to um to sort of have moments like that, but that they're actually all play acting for each other. And part of the infiltration, as you say, is this, this mask wearing, whether it's the literal mask of the of the skull um, or the sort of shifting uh, personalities that they uh, take on. Um, and, I, and I think those moments where the mask sort of crumbles actually are really interesting. Like there's that scene uh, when Geraldine uh, Chaplin has sort of first infiltrated the group, and she sees the uh, guard who is, uh, I'm not really sure how to describe their relationship. It's her brother who oh, yes. is dead, no, but is actually... No, it's not her
1: brother. It's a guy who looks exactly right. like her Right. I was going to say,
0: it, it's her brother who's dead has like a doppelganger in in LaFont's gang. Um, and her, her sort of uh, mask that she wears of this like hardened uh, bodyguard suddenly crumbles a bit when she sees uh, this doppelganger... Uh, and it just, it's not really, nothing's really said about that. Like LaFont doesn't, doesn't ask her like, why why are you all of a sudden like weeping in the middle of my, you know, secret lair where you're supposed to be, uh, you know, killing people for me. Um, it just sort of goes unspoken and, and there are lots of moments like that. LaFont doesn't
1: really ask questions in this movie. Well, that's true. To that, to that end. (laughs) She's like um, omniscient kind of. So uh, about, uh, and that was, um, was Humbert Balson? Balsam? Is that...
0: Is it the actor's name? name? Oh, yeah. I don't know. He's Shane and Jacob, right, are the two character names. Well, yeah,
1: I, I, yeah. I know that uh, I'm just bad with French, is what I mean. <laughs> I mean, he was also uh, in the Claire Denny, uh, The Intruder. That was him. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. I, but anyway, uh, that there is this um, strange, incestuous vibe that certainly didn't need to be there. Um, and... I'm still not quite sure why Rivette added that um other than perhaps a, as a way to give um um Geraldine Chaplin's uh character some hesitation in her actions mm-hmm. and and to further the idea of doubling in Rivette's movies. Speaking of hesitation, um I believe this is when there's an uh an attempted coup, but then um Chaplin's character hesitates. Uh at night there's that repeated uh insert of uh wispy clouds passing over a full moon. Mm-hmm. Uh and I still can't pin that image down in terms of any um Concrete meaning, but um, that is one of my favorite uh, images in Rivette's filmography. Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: do you want to talk about the the theater scene? Since we've mentioned it, and haven't really uh, uh, dug into yes. it at all. Because I think that's the, in a lot of ways, the, the key sequence in the movie. Uh, the sort of mizzen a beam, uh, like infinite mirror refraction of the the action of the movie writ large. Uh, performed in this uh, in this theater piece that uh, Chaplin plays the the woman who she's just murdered who is uh, i believe lafont's sister who for reasons that are never really clear lafont has like locked up in her lair uh and seems to to take pleasure in in tormenting uh and lafont has or sorry rather uh jolene Chaplin has killed her and the uh friend of of Chaplin who helped her infiltrate the group, Erica uh plays the Chaplin character uh and gives this this monologue about uh taking revenge and and how uh if the poison fails she's going to stab her uh to death with her just, steel.
1: Does the film the film I, I don't remember. Does the film make clear uh, at all why they are doing this with this No, I um, don't think so. The actresses, yeah, what's this the sorry, not the actresses, the um what's this Bern- Bernadette Lafont's decision or with this Chaplin's decision to do this play. It it does seem to um narratively pop out of nowhere, but at the same time, as you said, it is one of the central moments of this movie mm-hmm.
0: uh, yeah because if you i think before they actually start performing it's just lafont and one of the dancers just like hanging out in the room where they end up performing in just sort of i don't know they're just like talking and and something and then they just come in and suddenly start performing and and the look that lafont gives is like a sort of like surprise delight like oh this like show is now being put on uh, in front of me, it doesn't seem like something that she's ordered her crew to uh, perform for her. And at this point, does she even know that her sister's been murdered? Like, in a way, it's it's Chaplin communicating to LaFont, which doesn't make any narrative sense why she would want to do this, uh, that she's just killed her sister.
1: My answer is, <laughs> I remember messaging you and saying, there's still so much about Norwa I don't <laughs> understand. And you were like... What do you mean it's a really easy to follow basic plot, yes, <laughs> it is, but I think, as we found, um this is a very mysterious film.
0: yeah, it's easy to sketch the plot in macro, but then individual scenes just don't fit in in a way that then matches sort of like the macro movements of the plot. Um. I'm not saying that Brevet did insert of these scenes randomly, there
1: could very well be um, a, a justification for it that, uh, into the narrative itself that I'm not seeing, um, but, um, if his sole reason was I wanted to include a scene like this, um, I can't really begrudge that because it is a beautiful and arresting scene, and it's a film that I think benefits from, uh, its, it, uh, Enig- uh, enigmas. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, and actually, I think this is a... I, one thing I wanted to bring up in talking about Norwa uh, is the, the contributions of Eduardo de Gregorio, uh, yes. who wrote the movie and who also wrote uh, Duel and was a, a director in his own right. Um, and the
1: Lubchanskis worked on this. What's that? And uh, the uh, Lubchans- yeah, yeah. Lubchansky and Nicole Lubchansky um
0: did, but uh, yeah, I
1: mean, I, I think
0: exactly. uh, De Gregorio's contributions to to this and Duel are um, really essential to how these movies play because I don't think that Revet on his own actually would necessarily craft a scene quite like this. Revet often has these these theatrical scenes within his films, but as I was watching Noir, I was struggling to think of another one that plays so without sort of a narrative, a narrative that sets up why it's happening. Like something on Love like love on the Ground has this really extended uh, sort of play within the film sequence, but it's very, very clear why it's happening, who's sort of directed that it should happen. Um, you know, out well, one... Well, I mean, you
1: could say... Yeah, you could say about Celine and Julie that, yes, there is... Uh, a seemingly explicable uh, theatrical performance that takes up a uh, good deal of the film uh, in one way or another um, and there's no logical explanation to it but it at least fits into a narrative logical progression of dream of a dreamlike film. Right. I guess um, what I'm just
0: saying is I think, because that was also written by De Gregorio, my sense of the, the films that Rivette collaborated with uh, De Gregorio on is that a, a lot of that dreamlike texture and the way that things flow in and out of each other with less clear purpose is actually somewhat attributable to De Gregorio in a lot of ways. I think he, this is the period in which Rivette pushes that dreamlike quality to its most extreme and I, I don't think it's uh, an accident that it, it happens sort of uh, when he's working in tandem with, with De Gregorio, who I believe was the one who actually introduced Rivette to the play uh, as well. Uh, so I think in a lot of ways well, he's an important contributor to, to this. Certainly. And, and,
1: and I happen to prefer uh, Celine and Julie, duel and, and Norwa to um, like out one in, and La more by a really good margin um, so I'm not one to discount, um, contributions there. Um, but Rivette, I think, has always been open to contributions from, uh, his collaborators and not just screenwriters. Um, uh, I believe that, um, Augie and Bertha are credited in *Celine and Julie as screenwriters, mm-hmm. even though they're... Actresses because um, Rivette was more um, interested in collaboration um, than directing. He, I believe, is credited with mise en scène. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and on all his director. films, I believe he insisted yes. on on uh, being credited with mise en scène and not uh, not as the director. Yeah, I mean, I think that that comes through in this film uh, for sure as well, and especially just. Even down to the way that he stages everything, as we talked about in these long shots. Um, oftentimes, but they're not all.
1: Yeah, that's what I was going to say. That it it is like that, but also. Um, oh, you know what? I, I realized? <laughs> it just reminded me of uh, not a Lang Silent or even Moonfleet, but Reenter Notorious. Hmm. Yeah. I... Um, with without. Um, it's like Rancho Notorious if Marlene Dietrich wasn't sympathetic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it doesn't quite uh, but, have the... But in terms of the Chuckaluck house, yeah. The,
0: like, the psychosexual craziness of, of Rancho Notorious, uh, I think, but...
1: Uh, well, also that uh, the pirate's lair reminds me a lot of the house mm-hmm. in Rancho Notorious.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's definitely true. They have a similar, like... Um, like the arches and things look very very similar,
1: and that there's also a a sense of uh, as long as you pay your dues and serve me loyally, I don't care what you do or you where you come from. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: well, yeah. I think one last thing we should talk about, uh, unless you have something else you want to say, is is that final sequence which we alluded to briefly. Uh, because aside from the the theater, the play within the film, uh, I think that that final sequence is what really stands out uh, for me in in this film.
1: Yes, and I I'd be happy to talk about it. So go go <laughs> ahead.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, I mean I I don't know that I can't really uh, explicate exactly what what's happening, but basically the last half hour of the movie is, is just this long uh, masquerade sequence. Where they're sort of dancing around and and performing um, these like acts of, of violence, sort of fighting against each other, that then uh, eventually turns into like actual death with with Chaplin and uh, Lafont sort of stabbing each other simultaneously, which concludes the movie. But intercut between all of that are, as I had said before, these the tinted red sequences or shots rather, and these uh, black and white 16 millimeter shots where suddenly the soundtrack goes silent. Uh, And this is also roughly around the time in the movie where we realize that Bernadette LaFont can like summon the sun to like zap people to death. Um, There's a lot happening in the final like half hour of this movie. Uh, And yeah, I don't, I don't know exactly what uh, to make of it except that I, I find it, um, the dreamlike quality of the film achieves its uh, its sort of uh, height here uh, for me.
1: Well, it's it's also... Um, in, in, in this, the characterizations, I think, fall away purposely. I don't think that's a, a mistake or a, a failing in any way. Uh, and on the one hand, there is a... A, what do you uh, uh, An ascension into um, a sort of mythic quality in our leads, but everyone else um, becomes more uh, anonymous, masked actors and actresses and become bodies in space. But at the same time, um, Rivette almost seems to want to continue what happened with Duell, uh, with these mythical figures. And of course, he even brings back the idea of a sun goddess. Um, and I think those contrasts, um, in addition to the absolute wild um, formal experimentation with the silent sequences and, and the uh, red tinting, yeah, I, mean, I th- you've that's, seen like a breakdown of everything yeah
0: i think that's a great point about the way that the yeah. the um the characters sort of seem to who have already been unstable as as like consistent people throughout in a lot of ways um do really fall apart once they like actually put the masks on kind of like that but uh yeah and actually i think uh revet doesn't quite achieve quite the same uh nighttime luster that uh, Turner does in Technicolor, but I do think the, the way that the sequence all happens at night and the way Revet shoots it, uh, again, kind of connects it to hand of the Indies. There's a, a somewhat similar, um, very beautiful, uh, well, the nighttime.
1: accumulation of death in skulls in a smuggling, uh, area almost
0: reminds me of Moonfleet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely think that there's a lot of Moonfleet in, in this one. The, that eternal, the eternal snakes and funerals, uh, Movie. I feel like every episode, be, uh, something connects us back to, to Moonfleet in some way. But
1: and of course, putting LaFont is Sunfleet.
0: Sunfleet. I'd watch that. Yeah. Huh. Okay. Well, shall we? Uh, On that note, transition uh, one more time, to a break, and then we'll uh, come back to discuss singing behind screens. All right, uh, welcome back, uh, and now we're going to discuss our uh, final film for today, which is Hermano Olmi's Singing Behind Screens, uh, which came out in 2001. Is that three? Okay, uh, so this is obviously the uh, the most recent film uh, that we'll be talking about, uh, and uh, Singing Behind Screens is basically, uh, in some ways, even a more – well, I'd say a less radical, uh, integration of, of the conventions of theater and the iconography of, of pirate movies, but a more, um, more consistently theatrical, uh, in the sense of like, there are like scrims and, and curtains and, um, the actual sort of mechanics of, of theater, um, in this film than in Norwa, um, it's sort of integration of that, of that theatrical, um, iconography into the film, um is, is what's really, uh, to me the most striking about it. It, it follows, uh, a, the story of a, uh, real life Chinese, uh, pirate, uh, a woman who had taken over, um, the, uh, pirate fleet from her, uh, husband, uh, or, or partner, uh, after he had died. Um, and, and the movie sort of follows that, that story, uh, which I think it, it takes, uh, quite a few uh, liberties with, but it's all framed, uh, By this young man arriving at a, uh, what appears to be some sort of like brothel um, in some sort of uh, Chinese city. Uh, And he witnesses this performance uh, of, of this story of, of this uh, woman pirate Uh, and the movie Opens with, with that theatrical performance, but constantly sort of weaves in and out in, in very interesting ways uh, between that stage set and uh, the narration of um, Bud Spencer, who plays this old pirate uh, who's introducing and sort of the, the, um, the chorus uh, for the, the, the play um, that's happening. But then it also has these long sequences that uh, sort of abandon the, the theatrical. Uh, staging and are actually just like very beautifully shot outdoors in these like really stunning uh, landscapes and uh, is constantly switching back and forth between them. And anyways, I, the way that this film looks both when it's in its more theatrical mode and when it's sort of out on the actual high seas uh, is for me, what's, what's so remarkable about it It is just an incredibly uh, beautifully shot movie.
1: Uh, yes. So, um, Yeah, I love, uh, Bud Spencer in this, who, uh, has an almost Wellsian vibe of giving, um, of telling a sea shanty to the audience, um, but he also pops in to the ostensible narrative now and then as a crew member, um, which again puts me in mind of, uh, Wells, but like in F fake, um. So Bud Spencer is fantastic in this. Uh I just want to say quickly, um that although the story of um Ching Shi um is certainly the main focus, uh we do not start out with this story. Uh there are two um smaller vignettes which are much more theatrically bound. Um than our main story, and I don't quite feel that the um, mix of theater and, and um, the br- like um, brothel scenes really work. Um, and, and I'm even at the end. Um, although I'm quite a fan of this film, uh, that never truly coalesced for me, mm. uh, but. This set um, that we start out in, um, in which Spencer rambles on wonderfully about uh, pirates, uh, specifically Chinese pirates, and it's so uh, fascinating. This is an Italian movie about um, you know late um, like mid late seventeenth century Chinese pirates. Um, really unique mix. Uh, As you said, this is based on um, a real-life figure, and I'm continually fascinated by when it does shift back into its uh, theatrical uh, staging rather than being on the ship itself, Um, because the backgrounds there are... Painted clouds, um, in which people strike poses, or, um, the emperor scenes, which are really interesting because you have this painted blue tree in the background and, uh, everything is very rectangular and symmetrical. Um, whereas, unlike that lateral staging in those theatrical scenes, um, in, in the uh ship scenes, there has to be a better word to describe like the open air the, the scenes. Kind of, yeah. I don't the, know. Yes. Those are more um, you know, deeply staged, uh and and uh there's a lot of interplay between foreground and background in that in those scenes, whereas it almost unfolds um like a two dimensional painting and the theatrical scene. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. The way that, um, it constantly shifts between 2d and and 3d space is, uh, yeah, is quite striking. Um, and I guess it's also worth saying too, that, uh, you know, as we, as I said at the beginning of this intro, that the film, uh, these three films all focus on, on women pirates. And I think what's particularly interesting about this film is it sort of follows uh, the arc set out by Anne of Indies and of the Indies in a lot of ways uh, to a, a very different um, place where the uh, the pirate in this film, uh, like Anne discovers something she, I think didn't quite recognize about herself after her husband uh, is killed and she takes over his fleet. Uh, she you know, I think realizes that she's actually a very natural. Uh, pirate in a lot of ways. And uh, like Anne of the Indies, it's about this sort of like discovery of herself. And I think also ends in a weird way as maybe not tragedy, but as a sort of ends up in an elegiac kind of place where um, what she discovers about herself along the way and becoming a pirate is ultimately uh, like unsustainable. Um, And I think there's a way in which the, the theatricality uh and the sort of sea she- shanty uh quality of the narration as you suggest um does lend itself to the sense that this is something that like has already like an era and a, a sort of a way of being that's that's already passed and can only be told now um yes it it, it is
1: really i think nostalgic for Uh, the age of piracy it doesn't um it doesn't elide the fact that pirates did many terrible things but uh the uh key here is that compared to um the government um this almost felt like uh, a family of sorts uh and For her to abdicate was to save, not as much herself, although she does save herself, but to uh, save everyone um, who is under her fleet. And the the device of the kites might have been um, Olmi's invention, because I don't see any sources that say that that actually happened. Um, also, seems like a grossly ab-
0: impractical way to communicate uh, exactly. a message. But her
1: abdication, yes, her abdication as a pirate was real. Um, and uh, it. This film's transition from uh, sort of a, a spectacle in, in sea shanty stories. Um, That have a sort of almost raucousness about them, to something very solemn and moving about um, pride and sacrifice, um, is remarkable. And I'm surprised that this film isn't better known. Mm -hmm.
0: Well, and I I guess I want, and also it's gorgeous. Yeah,
1: like only one one shot that always um, has popped into my mind since I've seen this is um, seeing a rowboat in silhouette against bright waters, and uh, everything on the boat is uh, uh, all darkened with shadow, um, so that it does um, look like almost a magic lantern silhouette. And how uh, her husband, right before he dies... um, is shown, as I said, in that um, depth of field um, in his room, um, and he's in the foreground, uh, and his wife is uh, in bed in the background with all all these other objects, lighting, things to give him presence, but then he looks into not a mirror, but um, a glass surface, um, to see himself, and he uh, looks weak now, and it is a beautiful reversal uh, of fate because he's dying, uh,
0: and it's a really wonderful film. Uh, yeah, I wanted to touch back on uh, the uh, what you said about the government and uh, the movie, sort of its nostalgia for piracy. It goes out of its way to paint piracy as sort of being co-opted by the the government there's this like syndicate of like businessmen merchants and and government figures who actually are the reason for the husband's downfall they uh i believe they want him to you know uh, sign up to for protection basically and they'll give him you know he'll give them x amount of his his loot And he refuses to do it, and that's sort of why they uh, decide to kill him. Uh, And I think, as you said, the movie's vision of piracy is like a fundamentally romantic uh, occupation, despite the obvious uh, violence of the the profession, uh, gets at, or rather that the, the vision of government, of these rich merchants sort of corrupting this um, you know violent but perhaps in some ways like noble uh profession of piracy uh it's is core to the film's uh tone i think Mm-hmm. um and to your point it's it's not just
1: um you could have a good film but a about um about this pirate captain and her exploits and her abdication um I think you could still make a good film about that, but what makes this film unique is not only its theatrical context, but that it contextualizes her um within history um and how she is directly at odds with a um with a government that itself is dying and there is something i think very elegiac um about this movie as you alluded to well and the the final uh,
0: narration that uh, spencer gives is about how after her abdication which is done in this really beautiful sequence where she uh for the first time after becoming a pirate puts on sort of like traditional uh chinese uh women's clothes again and makes her way to the emperor's ship uh, where he like descends this big elegant staircase at like the mast of the ship to come down to her um, and has this really beautiful line that he says to her that forgiveness is mightier than the law. And then it transitions to uh, Spencer's narration where he basically says after this point in history, you know, women went and and went back to uh, being behind the screens and, basically implying that after she's abdicated that she's willingly put herself in a subordinate position to uh, the emperor, to the sort of male uh, society of these merchants and the government that, that want to control uh, and want to cut on, on the piracy. And I think um, the movie both finds that gesture that she makes, as you say, beautiful because it is a, a sacrifice that she makes to save this family that she has sort of developed on her on her ship, um, but I think also sees it as, as tragic as fundamentally giving up something um, that is not really uh, sustainable. Uh, if you're going to be a, a woman who sort of embeds herself in these very male uh, power structures,
1: you know that that's something that this has very much in common with uh, in the Indies. And I, I just want to touch on Nurwa briefly again for a second, that I did do find it curious in, uh, that that was never uh, an issue in Norwa, but I think that has to do with the fact that that film is meant to be not set in a specific time period, whereas these are both films set in the 17th century. Or no, the 18th century. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, I think in, in a way, the suggestion that both the Olme and the Turner make is that for a woman to, in, in this time period to, uh, assert herself, uh, and to be sort of, uh, the agent of, of her own destiny is like in and of itself, a sort of piratical act. Like you're taking something from the the power structures and claiming it for yourself. Um, and I think that gets to why Olmi in this film sees piracy as something, uh, Perhaps noble when it's tied to um a character like this.
1: Well, I think when she um defeats the general by using superior tactics, and he's forced to uh confront that in himself, that uh he lost to her, that it's not that he realizes that it's not humiliating because she's a woman, it's because she is the better tactician um, I think further elevates her uh, heroic status um, in the film's eyes right I mean she is yeah
0: she is also just like a, a very good pirate I mean the movie very clearly communicates that and a very um, humane pirate as much as you can be as a humane pirate uh, she doesn't allow her crew to just like murder uh, wantonly uh, and to like assault the the victims that they uh, take on board after they capture another ship, um, and is very kind to the like poor people of the ports that she uh, docks in, uh, and in sort of like a I guess it's almost like a Robin Hood like character where she's really you know focused on stealing from the government um, and not uh, quite so uh, openly hostile to just any any ship that she could go uh, rob for the loot. I also love one little touch, too, that she uh, asks her, uh, her pirate team to not refer to the loot as loot, but to refer to it as, I think, uh, trans-shipped goods, which I just I thought that was very funny.
1: Yes, and, and that's because in her eyes, um, she is not as much uh, a rebel against the government, but an alternative to the government, so wants to speak of this not even in terms of standard um standard pirate terms, but um using that language, which almost sounds uh bureaucratic to the point of being funny, but uh I don't think that she views that as being a joke. Mm-hmm. So that is a nice little touch, as, as you said. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I haven't seen any of uh, Olmi's other films, and obviously I can't imagine that they're like this and that they're about pirates, but um, have you seen any of his work? That, the only other
0: film yeah. of his that I've seen is one of his earliest films, might be his first film, I'm not sure off the top of my head, which is, um, I believe it's Eve Fidzanti, which is um, The Fiance, or the fiance is like uh, about a young uh, couple that's engaged to be married. And um, he goes off to like work in another village. It, it's, it's also poetic in some ways, but it doesn't have anywhere close to the like density of the mise-en-scene of this or the uh, anything close to the scope and uh, sweep of, of this film. Although I'm very curious to see his, uh, Film The Profession of Arms, which he made, I think, either right before or right after this, and is uh sounds very similar in terms of um sort of its its scope and uh, adventure like quality. I think it's about uh, crusaders or, or something to that effect, but no, I'm not a, an only expert.
1: Uh, I was just curious, yeah. Um, but even as, as someone who whether this film is representative or not, you know, I, I don't know, um. I I certainly would like this film to be uh, more well-known. But I I would also add that I would say the same thing for Anne of the Indies and *Norwal*. which does have, um, yes, does have an official release now, but Rivette is is still sort of one of those, unfortunately, lesser-known Yeah, I mean, I think Rivette's
0: got a little bit more of a cult uh, these days than he used to, but yeah, definitely... uh, of the three films, "Singing Behind Screens" is the one that, that practically no one. I mean, actually, speaking of Felipe Furtado, again, he, his recommendation was why we did this one. I think either of us had even really heard of this uh, before he had recommended it. So it does seem very, uh, uh, very under the radar. And yeah, I, I really yes. would recommend people uh, check this one out.
1: And I, I don't think that. Um there's no point in, even though these films all feature women pirates and I, I think have certain thematic similarities, I, I don't think that there's a point in making a any sort of thesis statement about um, these films. But uh, there is some, something to be said, I think, with the uh, idea of uh, fiction based on pirates – that it is uh, inherently something that is um, romantic, and even when dealing with historical figures, um, the most satisfying versions are often the most romanticized. Um, And at least in noir and um, seeing behind screens... Not entirely sure. So, I'd say the same about *Anne of the Indies*, but for those two films, there is a sort of reflexiveness that this sort of um, romanticization about pirates is um, certainly false, but very powerful.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think *Anne of the Indies* is is a uh plays it more straight, Um, it is a more, you know, a a genre product of its time. Although I do think that uh, Turner leaves enough sort of gaps um, in his perspective on what's happening to maybe read some reflexivity into it. But uh, yeah, it certainly has nothing like uh, like the theatrical, um, the very obvious reflexive gestures of the theatrical stuff in in either uh, noir or singing behind screens. Well, shall we drop well, the uh, sale curtain uh, on this one?
1: Yeah, I just have one last thing to say, um, which is I really think that people should read One Piece.
0: <laughs> I was wondering, you only made one uh, one additional like One two. Piece reference after yeah. the intro. I was amazed that we got this far. Um, it's it's my uh, monastic restraint. <laughs> yeah. The floor is yours if you want to pontificate on uh, One Piece. I'm just going to go leave and you can just keep talking.
1: No, no. It, although there were a couple moments when you mentioned something that I was like, you know, One Piece does <laughs> listen to that. Uh, but I, I don't imagine that there are – there's not necessarily too much crossover between someone who would want to listen to this podcast and someone who would want to read One Piece – I don't know. I just, you need to. When am I? When am I going to have the opportunity to talk about? This you need again? to petition Omi so uh,
0: to make an adaptation of One Piece. That that would not then work. Then we could. <laughs> it is too long. <laughs> well, that's true. It's like what you said, eighty-six volumes or something.
1: No one's listening anymore. Okay. They've turned it. They've turned this <laughs> off. And That's my fault. All right.
0: Well, then let's uh, let's wrap it up. Then uh, okay. Well, thank you, Eli. Um, that was fun. Uh, pirate movies, always fun time. And uh, hopefully we'll be back uh, in a shorter order than we were uh, after our, our unintended hiatus since uh, we talked about Helmut Kautner over the summer. But uh, that was like five years. It seems ago. like I it. I don't remember it. Uh, okay, well, I'm gonna. We'll sign off then. Uh, thanks, everyone. Yo ho ho.